Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, trade tensions between the U.S. and some of its leading trading partners continue to escalate. First, it was China, uh, then Mexico, and now India. To get a sense of where we go next, we welcome our next guest, Jens Nordvig, founder and CEO of Exante Data, LLC, uh, also a chief strategist there at Exante, uh, based in New York City. Uh, Jens, thanks so much for joining us. Um, it just seems like these concentric circles of ever-growing trade tensions continue to widen. What is your sense of how this will play out for U.S. Uh, economic growth? Yeah, I have to say um, it's really starting to be a sort of big compounding effect in the sense that, okay, maybe the U.S. economy could sort of take uh, one trade war, but when you start to have multiple trade wars at the same time, uh, it becomes much harder to handle. So uh, obviously having a, a small amount of tariffs on uh, a small portion of trade is is one thing, and we had that initially with the steel tariffs. Uh, but we're starting to look at a, a situation where we could have tariffs on all imports from China. And uh, the process that we're in now with Mexico starts from a low level of tariffs, but it is uh, potentially on all goods uh, ramping up to 25%. So uh, if this goes the, the wrong way, we're really looking at a situation where you have tariffs on a very, very big uh, number of imports. And uh, most of the research that's coming out on how this feeds through into the economy suggests that U.S. consumers uh, pay really the bulk of the bill. And that's how you, you get a really big negative impact on the U.S. economy. What's interesting to me, Jens, is where the havens have been. I mean, we've seen people flood into the dollar, uh, the broad dollar index gaining about a half a percentage point last month. Uh, meanwhile, we're also seeing people flood into U.S. Treasury. So U.S., the, the sort of biggest beneficiary uh, so far. Do you think that's going to continue? Yes, yeah, so I think when you had the, the U.S.-China tension really driving things, it made some sense that there was a sort of positive dollar effect for a, uh, a period of time. And that was linked to the fact that, okay, China is a big part of the global economy. So uh, the global growth situation with the tier rate and also the Chinese currency is such a big drive of global currency markets that if the Chinese currency was weakening, it was going to essentially push a lot of other currencies down with it and sort of implicitly generate dollar strength. But I think when you, once you escalate the trade war to include Mexico, uh, it becomes different because, number one, the, the hit to the U.S. economy is dip, disproportionately larger, in part because Mexico has more uh, imports from the U.S. that they can retaliate against, but also just because those two effects start to stack up to, uh, on top of each other, and, and the Fed really is forced to respond more forcefully. And that's what you're starting to see, obviously, in, in Fed pricing having moved very aggressively. So now, and uh, not only are we pricing a Fed cut by September, but we're really starting to pry a high probability that the Fed will be forced to move sooner than that. It's a pretty extraordinarily quick shift. And the rate moves are now such that, that the dollar is, is starting to take a hit. And I think rightly so. Uh, and I think the problem is that we've, we've come from a period where the dollar has been strong for about a year. So if momentum starts to turn, 
uh, there could be a lot of technical adjustments that, that can really uh, put the dollar on quite a bit of pressure. And today might be a really important day because the euro is starting to move. Uh, gold is having a very big move today, which is typically a reflection of the broader dollar direction. Uh, so it's a quite important day for the currency market today, I would argue. So, Jens, staying with the currency markets, the when we think about China in particular, the trade tensions there, uh, to what extent, I mean, historically, the Japanese yen has been perceived as a safe haven. Do you still consider that to be the case? Yes, I think uh, the yen has, has clearly participated in this uh, dynamic over the last few sessions where the, the dollar is trading on the back foot. And uh, that has generated a decent sized move low on dollar yen. It's not like a big break from the range we've seen in the last couple of years. We've sort of been in a in a 105, 115 range, which is a relatively narrow range over the last two, three years. So the, the big question is whether we're going to really break out of that range. And uh, I think there's two big questions there. The one question is, okay, are, are Japanese investors going to start to hedge the U.S. assets differently if uh, we're looking at potentially a big slowdown in U.S. growth and the fail actually cutting rates? Uh, so that's something that, that certainly will come into play if, if uh, the Fed really delivers and the carry involved in, uh, in, in this trade, and therefore the cost of hedging co comes down. And then the other thing that, that's really important for the yen is uh, Japanese companies have been on a bit of a buying spree in terms of buying up other companies around the world, M&A activity. That could be in question if we have a, a real sort of tense global environment. Uh, and that would also see the yen strengthen if that outflow stops. Uh, so I think there's a chance we can break out of this range. Uh, the, the big thing to watch in the short term is, is this theme of escalation sticking? Like, are we going to have the escalation on June 10 with the tariffs actually coming into effect uh, in relation to Mexico? And then uh, are we going to have uh, some kind of positive headlines at the G20 meeting when, when it takes place in, in Japan at the end of the month, or are we just going to literally move to a full-blown trade war versus China? I think those are the really key things to watch there. How much will the dollar weaken in your view? So I, th I think if, if the Fed is really delivering cuts here in coming months, and uh, we have an, an environment where, where perhaps the Chinese actually hold their currency. So that's a key win. But if the Chinese don't allow their currency to move, then I think we're in an environment where the dollar can weaken meaningfully. But if the Chinese allow their currency to break seven, so a, a, a depreciation beyond what they've allowed in recent years, then you have a sort of tricky situation with an, a, a dollar bearish impulse from the Fed but actually accounts of force from the direction of the Chinese currency. So it's absolutely crucial whether the Chinese are going to hold the currency here, as they've done in recent weeks, or whether they're going to allow a break of seven if we move to a full-blown trade war. So Jens, just given the uncertainty surrounding global trade, are there pockets of relative safety that you're looking at in terms of currencies? <laughs> um, well, so I think I think one thing that's been very interesting uh, over the last week or so that I actually think can continue is that uh, we're now seeing that emerging market currencies that had a really bad year over the last year or so uh, can um, actually uh, start to perform better. So. Um, it's it's a situation where we have sort of bearish uh, 
positioning in EM space that is now perhaps too bearish yeah. if we have a much lower environment for global yields. So I think EM currencies can start to ironically do better, especially relative to other risk assets. So, for example, if yeah. you compare with the S&P, I think EM con- uh, currencies can do better. Jens Nordvig, thank you so much for being with us. A really interesting call there about how emerging market currencies will do well as yields uh, continue to go lower here in the United States. Jens Nordvig is founder and chief executive officer of Exante Data, also chief strategist at uh, Exante Advisors. There's been a market shift in sentiment from, oh, China and the U.S. will come to some sort of deal to uh, what will a protracted trade war look like? Joining us now to think about that is Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist at High Frequency Economics. Carl, uh, let's start and fast forward, making some assumptions that trade wars rage on, the market keeps declining, and an economic downturn ensues. What does that economic downturn look like? Well, good morning, Lisa. Um, you know, the uh, economic downturn that we're looking at worldwide right now is a little bit broader than trade, but it, uh, than the trade wars, but it all has its roots in trade, which is now flat or declining, depending on the metric you look at worldwide. And, you know, companies that uh, export are the ones that are affected first. Tariffs affect consumers, make them a little bit less reluctant to buy stuff because they have less disposable income as their their spending power goes down. But uh, the first real hit is probably going to be on the side of corporations that are going to face supply chain issues, they're going to face cost issues, and then that will lead to financial market implications. So, Dr. Weinberg, we got some uh, disappointing uh, U.S. manufacturing data out today. Give us a sense of, to the extent that these trade skirmishes, uncertainties continue, maybe even expand. Gee, if you think about, you know, India as well uh, now being in the crosshairs, how do you think the manufacturing community around the world will respond? Yeah, good morning, Paul. Yes, everybody has got to be alarmed by this because the expansion of the U.S. administration's tariff, uh, I'll call it tariff aggression to borrow language from the Chinese, um, basically undermines the uh, confidence that uh, companies of all kinds all around the world face uh, in making business plans and decisions. They don't really know the cost structure that they're going to face. They don't really know the trade and the tariff regime. And as uh, the FedEx example indicates, they don't even know if they're going to be constrained in their business enterprises in companies that resist uh, the tariff uh, uh, advances by the United States, the tariff increases. So it's a general role of uncertainty. It's a role of profit compression. And it's certainly uh, in these uncertain times, it's one that causes companies to cut back on investment until the smoke clears. And of course, that's always bad for the world economy. You were saying earlier that there will be financial market implications. Basically, the market's going to sell off. Risk assets are going to sell off in this scenario. How much? Is this going to be a crash like 2008? Yeah, hi. Well, you know, I was listening to Bloomberg Radio as I was driving into the office this morning and heard you guys talking about individual companies and the impacts that this is having on their earnings forecasts, on their profit forecasts, on their general uh, rule view of the world and their and their guidance to markets. So this is really how it begins. You know, um, 
crashes, you know, I'm not in the business of predicting crashes. You know, I don't think we have to have a stock market crash. The stock market is certainly uh, high enough that some kind of correction is probably coming anyway. This just increases the odds of that happening. But a crash, you know, that, that's not my domain to predict. It. I don't have anything on my horizon that will cause a crash. Dr. Weinberg, I think I have a straightforward question here. Who pays for tariffs? Oh, that's a really straightforward question. Very refreshing also because the Trump administration has it all wrong. When they raise tariffs on things that come from China, you pay the tariffs, all right, not the Chinese. Now, the Chinese may lose some sales to the United States, but since the exports are growing between, oh, say, 5 and 10% per year anyhow, they're probably going to sell whatever they don't sell to you to somebody else. And um, in terms of the countervailing tariffs, the Chinese have been very careful to tariff things for which they, consumers at home have a lot of substitutes, like soybeans. They can buy soybeans from any number of countries in the world. They just buy less from the U.S. farmer, and the U.S. farmer is the one who pays uh, the tariff. So at the end of the day, when you go out to buy your iPad and you can't buy it from any source other than China, you end up paying the tariff. Your income to spend on other things is reduced, and you're the one who then has the vote uh, to determine uh, whether or not uh, this regime is going to continue. So one sort of theory, and President Trump has put this out, is that eventually companies will rejigger their supply chains uh, so they don't rely on, co on countries that are the most tariffed. And this is sort of the point of putting on these levies. I guess my question is, you know, how do you respond to people who say, look, this is temporary in order to get the, the trading situation more fair, and then the U.S. will prosper as a result of it? Oh, Lisa, you sound like a Wall Street economist. You know, at the end of the day, everything's going to be all right. But until we get there, all right, we have to survive. All right, a company whose supply chain is interrupted today has to live until tomorrow to be able to take advantages of whatever is coming better in tomorrow. We economists are always guilty of uh, ignoring transition costs and transition uh, obstacles uh, as we talk about one new situation being better than another. You know, maybe we will or maybe we won't be better off tomorrow. We can debate that forever. But for a car company that has to source parts from a country that it can no longer trade with or at a 25% higher cost, that's a problem for survival today. That's a problem for pricing today, for profits today, for making payroll today, for hiring and firing workers today. And that's really what we're talking about in the financial markets, isn't it? It's today. So, Dr. Weinberg, are there particular industries that you think are most at risk here in, a, in a, just a rising trade tension environment? Um, is there anything particularly that I think investors should be looking out for? Well, you know, I can hide behind my role as a macroeconomist and say that I don't look at industries. But as a macroeconomist, what I can say is that pretty much every industry, whether it's manufacturing or services, today has gone global. Pretty much all industries, pretty much all companies have some kind of linkage to the rest of the world, and therefore every company is vulnerable to um, uh, these, uh, this tariff uh, uh, regime. And um, uh, I can't even think of any exceptions of a purely domestic uh, company that purely sources things domestically. I mean, even if you just use a laptop computer to do your books, you know, Joe the plumber is vulnerable to higher tariffs on that computer that he does his books on because of uh, 
um, uh, the tariff thing. So we're, we're all subject to this in one way or another. All industries, all sectors, all people, no place to hide. One thing that I find interesting is the question of who's going to suffer more, uh, the U.S. or emerging markets, including China. Uh, We have PIMCO coming out and saying investors are underestimating the value in emerging market stocks. Do you think that right now developing markets are going to be less hard hit than the United States? Well, you know, developing markets, I mean, let's look at China, all right? China makes a wide variety of stuff. And the United States is only about 15% of its export market, and it's not going to lose all its exports to the United States for sure. Americans will pay more for the stuff that they can't get from somewhere else. However, all right, uh, a lot of the stuff that they won't sell here in the United States, they've got 85% of the world to sell their stuff to. Now, China is an extraordinary case because of the diversity of its products. But whether you're selling, you know, broad-based commodities or high-end manufactured goods, if you're any country in the world, you uh, can sell it probably to somebody else if you can't sell it in the United States. And that's really one of the flaws in the strategy. Unilateral attacks on countries like this, when you're not the biggest dominant player in the world anymore, that is a strategic error in my opinion. Dr. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Weinberg is the founder and chief international economist at High Frequency Economics. I think a couple of takeaways there are, number one, trade wars are bad. Um, And uh, number two, tariffs ultimately are paid uh, by the consumer, uh, neither of which is good for global economic growth. Let's talk clean energy for the home. In the U.S., buildings account for nearly 40% of all carbon emissions, and one company has a plan to curb those emissions. Kathy Hanun is the CEO and co-founder of Dandelion Energy. Dandelion Energy is a spin-out company of Google X and is the nation's leading home geothermal company. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. So just tell us a little bit about Dandelion's technology and how it kind of works. I'd be happy to. So Dandelion installs residential geothermal systems. These are systems, heating and cooling systems that get placed in the home, usually where the furnace used to be. And they have what are called ground loops. So these are pipes that we install in the ground and they let that heat pump gather heat from the ground to heat the home in the winter and then push heat into the ground to cool the home in the summer. So they're very inexpensive to operate, very quiet. And a lot of homeowners have started switching from their from their furnaces. Can you give us a sense of just how big adoption has been so far? Absolutely. So the company actually started selling our product um, a little bit less than a year ago, and we already have hundreds of customers in New York, which is the market we serve today. So if I were to do this to my home, what's my out-of-pocket cost, and what are my hopeful savings? Absolutely. Well, um, out-of-pocket costs tend to be around eighteen to twenty thousand uh, dollars, which sounds like a lot, but when you consider that uh, many homeowners are spending three thousand, four thousand dollars a year on fuel oil or propane. Um, that payback period tends to be very, very fast. And we offer financing. So actually, most of our homeowners choose to pay nothing up front, so zero cost. 
And then um, they pay off the system over time and the repayment amount each month is less than what they would have been spending to heat their home otherwise. So they're actually coming out ahead every single month that they have the system. One thing that I find really interesting about this company is that it's a spin out from Google X, which is where all moonshot ideas uh, are born at Google. And you worked there before uh, becoming the CEO and co-founder of Dandelion Energy. Why did you decide to spin it out? So we made the decision with Google X to spin it out because this company really um, was ready. It was ready to start selling products to homeowners. And what Google X specializes in is research and development, um, moonshot projects that can take a decade to come to fruition, but then when they do, they change the world. And for this project, we didn't need that decade. We um, we were ready to start selling the product. So we decided to spin it out and started to sell. So talking about this, the, the germo, geothermal market, is it, I mean, how big is it? How fast is it growing? Um, just give us a sense of what the market looks like. Well, today it is actually quite a small market in the sense that very few homeowners get to enjoy geothermal heating and cooling and I would say many homeowners haven't really heard about it even, uh, which is a shame because there's just so much money that homeowners could save if they were to adopt the technology. What's been preventing it from being larger in the past has been it's been too expensive. So a typical system in the past has cost 50000 or more, which is just out of range for almost everyone. Um, but the heating and cooling market couldn't be bigger. So all of us spend so much money, especially in climates that get cold in the winter um, on heating. And that market is hundreds of billions of dollars. What was it like working at Google X? Oh, it was fantastic. So my job, um, which I was so lucky to have, I was a rapid evaluator is what we called it. So what that meant is I got to explore new opportunities for Google to invest in technologies that could have a huge impact and become huge businesses someday. And I think one of the great things about X is just the intellectual freedom that we were given to do that sort of thing. And then also, of course, the quality of the people that we got to work with. Who are, so when you think about Google X is, you know, I guess investors, when I think about Google X, it really is these moonshots. How many projects are roughly being worked on, I guess, or how many, you know, at any given time. And then I guess you just decide when it's time to spin out, right? Yeah. So the way it works is at the very early stages, things are just an idea. So it's really, you know, there are, there are hundreds of ideas getting batted around at any given time, but most of them, as you can imagine, don't make it very far because part of the process at X is to identify as quickly as possible why a given idea is doomed not to work. So we're trained to be optimists, but optimists who are always looking for the fatal flaw because opportunity cost is such a real thing, especially at a place like Google with so many resources. So the areas that are most ripe for disruption, energy uh, you pinpointed, is, are there any others that are sort of high areas of interest? For X. Well, I haven't been there for two years, so I can't speak um, about the, the areas of interest there today, but I know that um, we were always very attentive to trends and technology. So you can imagine that um, areas like artificial intelligence, robotics, um, you know, maybe maybe agriculture, maybe bio. I think all of those areas, we are just seeing such rapid development that I wouldn't be surprised if they were fertile ones for X. 
Kathy Hanoon, thank you so much for being with us. Kathy Hanoon, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Dandelion Energy, uh, looking at the trapped heat in the ground as a potential source of energy and depositor of energy in the summertime as a way to uh, have a more uh, green way of yep. heating your home. Alphabet shares falling today, uh, nearly 6%, currently down 5.7%, uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, this comes as the Department of Justice in the United States is considering an antitrust probe into the company. Very interesting development. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us here. Uh, what do you make of this? Why now? I think that's a very good question and it remains to be seen. Look, there's obviously a different administration in Washington and the tech companies, including Google, are also uh, getting big, er, bigger every day and more powerful every day. And uh, officials in government, including the head of the, the Department of Justice, have signaled an interest in the size and power of big tech companies, although I think people like Attorney General Bill Barr have been quick to note that, look, size itself is not an antitrust violation, but how you use your power can be. That's interesting because I think it's obviously a big issue for Google today. But as you suggest, this I think investors probably are also concerned that they're just looking at tech more broadly, given how some I mean, is that really a risk out there from what you know? I mean, to me, look, this is one of the biggest risks of any of these large U.S. tech companies is the possibility of continued, persistent, permanent political and regulatory pressure. You were seeing today, right, that both Amazon and Facebook have a little bit of a stock decline today. There was news out of Washington over the weekend that, you know, the Department of Justice and the FCC have sort of divvied up responsibility, where the DOJ is sort of taking responsibility for Google and the Federal Trade Commission, sorry, I said FCC, the Federal Trade Commission is taking responsibility of Amazon. So that suggests that there may also be kind of regulatory interest looking at Amazon. And I think that the share price of Amazon today reflects that possibility. Which segments of Alphabet's business are most likely uh, to come under particular scrutiny? You are shaking your head. I mean, shrugging. beats me. It could well, be anything, <laughs> right? right? Look, so th there is some precedent here, right? The that Google or Google's parent company, Alphabet, has been fined multiple times by European antitrust regulators. And that was over a number of issues, including um, the way that Google sort of tied its Android smartphone operating system to other aspects of his, its business, including um, its its apps and its Chrome browser for smartphones. There was a fine related to how Google... Um, handles internet shopping and um, other kind of comparison internet shopping engines. The Federal Trade Commission investigated Google for possible antitrust investigation uh, violations more than six years ago, and it looked at a number of issues, including Google kind of scraping information without permission from other internet providers, including Yelp and TripAdvisor, to sort of improve Google search results. So look, the DOJ could look at any of those things or really anything. I guess, t you know, taking a, a look at it from Google's perspective, they can probably just come back to regulators around the world and say, hey, we built the best mousetrap out there. That's why we have 70 or 80% share of search queries. 
But that doesn't seem to be winning the day here. I think, that, is there a sense that maybe that argument has to change, that yet it's not just that there's substitutes, but you guys maybe just mishandle your market dominance? So I, I think that's a great question. And look, Google is very practiced now at dealing with these kind of anti-monopoly concerns and regulations. And Google's line has always been, as you said, we built a better mousetrap. Competition is just one click away is their kind of favorite phrase. And it is hard, right? Because you can't necessarily point to direct consumer harm because Google provides internet services that are free. And a lot of billions of people use them around the world and they're valuable. But what regulators look at as well, or what they might look at as well is, okay, let's play the long game here. If Google manages to kind of put out of business or get a stranglehold on lots of aspects of internet advertising or lots of uh, of aspects of information online, does that harm consumers? Or is Google doing things um, that basically abuse its power in such a way that it crushes competitors. And the the problem with antitrust investigations is that they're broad and you just don't know what the investigators will find. Interesting. Sure. Over day, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering all things tech for us coming in at the last minute to give us some color on Google. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.